begin today's business with First Minister's questions, but before we turn to the questions, could I invite the First Minister to update the Parliament on COVID-19 situation? Uh, thanks, Presiding Officer. I'll give a very short update on today's statistics and some other developments. Uh, the total number of cases that were reported yesterday was 933. Uh, that's 4.7% of all tests reported. Uh, the total number of cases therefore now stands at 103,305. Uh, there are currently 984 people in hospital, that's 12 more than yesterday, and 52 people in intensive care, which is two more than yesterday. Uh, I also uh, very much regret to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 50 deaths were registered of patients who had first tested positive in the previous 28 days, and the total number of people who have died under that daily measurement is now 4,039. Uh, the fact that the number of deaths using this measure has passed 4,000 should of course be a moment of reflection, not least because it reminds us yet again of the dreadful toll this virus takes. And again, my condolences go to everyone who has lost a loved one. Uh, I have two other points I want to mention briefly. Firstly, we will shortly publish the latest estimate of the R number. We expect that this publication will confirm that the R number has fallen further below one, which is confirmation that the restrictions in place are having the desired effect at this stage. Uh, and of course, that progress is why on Tuesday we were able to indicate that 16 local authority areas will move into a lower level of restrictions from tomorrow. Uh, that's good news, but as I have stressed already, it makes it all the more important for everyone to show caution. Um, second, I'm able to give the first of what will be weekly reports on the numbers of people vaccinated against COVID. Um, I can confirm that over the course of Tuesday and Wednesday, a total of 5,330 people in Scotland uh, received the first dose of the vaccine. Uh, during those first two days, vaccinations took place in all health board areas. Uh, with the exception of Shetland and the Western Isles, vaccinations in those areas will start this week. Uh, I want to thank everyone involved in ensuring that the programme got off to a positive start, because we know this is a major undertaking with some very significant logistical challenges involved. Uh, we will publish weekly updates on the vaccination programme from next Wednesday onwards. We can all be hopeful that the start of vaccinations does mark the beginning of the end of the pandemic for Scotland, but the coming months will still be really difficult and all of us should do everything we can to keep ourselves and loved ones safe. For anyone in a local authority area moving down a level tomorrow, I would ask uh, that everyone remembers that this is a move that will bring risks. So please continue to be cautious and try to limit your interactions with others as much as possible. The fact is that every time we come into contact with someone from another household, whether that's in a shop, a cafe, at work, uh, we do give this virus the opportunities it craves. So we should try to limit these interactions as much as we possibly can. We see in other parts of the UK just now that as restrictions have eased, case numbers have started to rise again, and that is a real risk that we face here too. The only way to mitigate against it is for all of us to be ultra-cautious and careful and stick rigidly to the rules, and for all of us to remember that just because we can do something does not mean in these circumstances that we should. Uh, let me remind everybody that the postcode checker on the Scottish Government's website is there for anybody who wants to know what the rules in their area are. Uh, but to summarise, please do not visit other people's homes at the moment. Uh, stick to the rules on travel and follow facts. Uh, face coverings, avoid crowded places, clean your hands and surfaces regularly, keep two metres distance from people in other households and self-isolate and get tested if you have symptoms. As always, doing all of these things is the best way we have of protecting ourselves and our loved ones and communities and, of course, protecting the National Health Service as we go further into winter. Thank you very much, First Minister. Uh, we'll turn to First Minister's questions. Uh, anybody who wishes to ask a supplementary, please press your request to speak button. And I call Ruth Davidson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. On Tuesday, the Chief Executive of the SNP, Peter Murrell, gave evidence under oath to the Parliamentary Committee investigating the Scottish Government's botched handling of harassment allegations against Alex Salmond. That evidence plainly contradicted the First Minister's own version of events. So whose story does the First Minister find most believable? Peter Murrell's or her own? First Minister. Um, I've already set out uh, the reasons for and circumstances of my meeting with Alex Salmond in written evidence. In a few weeks' time, I will answer questions in person to the committee uh, on these matters. 
Uh, and the fact is, only I can do that. Only I can set out the circumstances, the reasons for uh, the decisions that I have made. The fact of the matter is, my husband had no role in these meetings. He has no role, had no role in the matters under investigation by the committee. Um, Ruth Davidson might want to attack my husband uh, and use him as a weapon against me. People will draw their own conclusions about that, but it doesn't change the basic fact of the matter that he had no role in these issues. Ruth Davidson. Presiding officer, I'm asking about this because a group of women who came forward were utterly let down by the First Minister's government, and the fallout from that is still going on. And if the First Minister doesn't want to answer for the consequences of her government's actions, then shame on her. And, Presiding Officer, like many members of this Parliament, I am in awe of the First Minister's ability to believe that two completely opposing versions of events can somehow be explained away so easily. So let's get back to the evidence that was given to a parliamentary committee. And in his evidence, Mr Murrell said, under oath, that the issue that was raised with Nicola at the time was a Scottish government matter. However, the First Minister has repeatedly claimed that the meetings were in a party-stroke personal capacity. These statements are clearly contradictory. They cannot simply both be correct. So, First Minister, which one of them is in fact true? First Minister. The thing is, Ruth Davidson is wrong in what she opened that question with. I do want to answer. Um, I haven't yet had the opportunity to sit before the committee and answer. I will get that opportunity in a few weeks. And not only am I obliged to do that, uh, but I'm keen to do that. I have set out uh, the answers to the questions that Ruth Davidson has asked me in my written evidence. I've set out uh, what I thought uh, might uh, raise immediate uh, implications for my party in the meeting I had with Alex Hammond and why that turned out not to be the case. Uh, after that, my priority was protecting the confidentiality and the integrity of the process. Now, the committee will have the opportunity to question me on that, and it's right and proper they do so. It is because I do care about the implications of this, both for women who came forward with complaints and for any women who might feel the need to come forward with complaints in the future. This is an inquiry into an investigation of sexual harassment, and that is why we should all treat it seriously. Uh, but those who choose instead to indulge wild conspiracy theories, I think, make it less likely, rather than more likely, that we learn the lessons of that. But the fact of the matter is, it is for me to answer, because I am the leader of this government. My husband is not a member uh, of my government. He had no role in these matters. It is for me to answer, and that's exactly what I will do. Ruth Davidson. Presiding officer, under oath, the chief executive of the SNP, as the First Minister has said was her husband, I was using his professional term, um, says the meetings were government business, business. But in written testimony, the head of Scotland's government says they were SNP business. And Nicola Sturgeon seems to think that all of our heads button up the back here, because here's what we're being asked to accept. That the chief executive of the SNP popped his head round the door to find the First Minister of Scotland coincidentally his wife, her predecessor, Alex Salmond, his chief of staff, her chief of staff and Mr Salmond's lawyer, all sitting unannounced in his living room. And he never asks a single question, then or since, of what that's all about. And this morning, we now learn that Angus Robertson, a former deputy leader to Nicola Sturgeon, was told 11 years ago of alleged inappropriateness by Mr Salmond. Eleven years. And I take it the First Minister's line is that she had no idea about that either. Another allegation that just passed her by. Does she really think that sounds plausible? And is it seriously what the First Minister is asking us to believe? First Minister. Yes, because it happens to be the truth. And that may not... That, that may not suit uh, what Ruth Davidson wants to be the situation, but I'm afraid that is the situation. And on the issue of uh, conversations or lack of conversations between me and my husband, um, I, I sometimes wonder if the opposition here is revealing more about themselves than they are about me. And I, you know, I heard the reaction across the chamber. The fact of the matter is I am First Minister of Scotland. I deal with confidential matters every single day 
of my life. These range from national security matters through to market-sensitive commercial uh, matters and a whole range of things in between. Um, I don't gossip about these things even to my husband. Yeah. I am the first minister of the country, not the office gossip, and I take my responsibilities yeah. in that role extremely seriously. Ruth Davison. But the thing is, presiding officer, Mr Murrell didn't just contradict the First Minister, he contradicted himself. First, he claimed he had no prior knowledge of the First Minister's meeting with Mr Salmond at their house, only to later admit that he'd known about it the night before. And it's all part of a piece of a First Minister who forgot about a meeting that she'd had with Mr Salmond's Chief of Staff, where he discussed allegations of a sexual nature, who omitted even to acknowledge the existence of that meeting until it was revealed in a court of law, and who told BBC viewers that she didn't know of any stories around Mr Salmond before he told her, only then to admit that she'd actually been informed months before. And there's a pattern here of sharp brains suddenly turning blank, of contradictions piling up, of half-answers having to be dragged out of people who should know better. The First Minister and the Chief Executive of the SNP are intelligent, experienced political operatives but on this one issue, why is it that they can't get their story straight? First Minister. Well, I don't accept that that is the case. Uh, let me set out uh, very clearly uh, the situation uh, that transpired back when the Scottish Government developed a process in the wake of all of the Me Too revelations. My priority was to make sure that my government had in place a process that would allow complaints to be investigated without fear or favour. I think that was the right thing to do. Uh, when complaints uh, came forward, the Scottish Government was right to investigate them, regardless of who the complaints were about. When I became aware of those complaints, my priority was to protect the integrity and the confidentiality of that process. It is right and proper uh, that the committee uh, scrutinises the Scottish Government's handling of this matter and scrutinises my actions and decisions. I have no complaint about any of that. That's why I've put forward uh, written evidence and it is why I uh, look forward, actually, uh, if that is not a strange way of putting it, to the opportunity to sit in front of the committee and answer any questions that the committee has. It is for me and the Scottish Government to do that. Um, and I understand why Ruth Davidson wants to drag my husband into these matters, but the fact of the matter is he had no... He had no role in the matter. It is for me to answer these questions, and that is exactly what I will continue to do. Question number two, Richard Leonard. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, we understand, we all understand, that Scotland's strategic framework says decisions on lockdowns are based on judgment as well as facts. But does the National Incident Management Team do Public Health Scotland not have access to the same data and intelligence that the First Minister and her Cabinet have? Because we know that public health officials briefed the Council leadership and Chief Executive of Edinburgh that the city should be moved to level two. That's not just hearsay, that's what is stated in an emergency motion being moved by the SNP leader of the Council this afternoon. So why did the First Minister and her cabinet vote to overturn that advice. The advice from the National Incident Management Team, uh, we look at all of the indicators and we apply judgment to that. The Chief Medical Officer is part of the Cabinet discussions. On Edinburgh in particular, and I would preface my comments here by just, uh, I suppose, saying that why on earth would I want to keep Edinburgh or any part of the country in a higher level of protection when I didn't think there was a need to do that? Let me just share with the Chamber the latest data on the City of Edinburgh. Um, in the last, this is the, the figures uh, that were available yesterday. We'll get updated figures later today. But over the past seven days, uh, the number of cases per 100,000 in the city of Edinburgh has gone up by 14%. Uh, test positivity has gone up uh, by 0.5%. Uh, uh, test positivity is 
still moderate in Edinburgh, but it has increased in five of the last seven days. Um, the latest uh, data shows that case levels have increased in four of the past seven days. Uh, today's case numbers that I reported to Parliament just a moment ago, uh, the Health Board breakdown of those show that Lothian accounts for the second biggest uh, number of cases that we have reported today. So these are serious decisions to take and they have to be taken carefully and, and basically if you have a situation uh, where you have in any area uh, case numbers n rising slightly or not declining uh, significantly enough, then there is a real risk in easing up restrictions because the danger then is the situation runs very quickly out of control. And the judgment the Cabinet reached was that to take Edinburgh down a level at this stage would have posed uh, a significant risk uh, to the overall situation, which is why we didn't do it. We will review it again uh, on Tuesday. Uh, we only have to look across the world right now, across Europe, but even in the UK right now, we see as uh, restrictions ease. We start to see a slight increase in cases uh, in England as, as restrictions have eased. In Wales, we are seeing a dramatic increase in cases and a, a bit of an increase in Northern Ireland as well. That is what we potentially face as we ease restrictions. So it's really important that before we do that, we make sure the situation is as stable as possible. And given the data I've just shared with the Chamber in Edinburgh, um, I, I really don't think that would have been a safe or a sensible decision uh, to do this week. I understand why people in Edinburgh would have wanted it, but I think in a couple of weeks, they may have had a very, very different view of that. Bridget Leonard. Uh, thank you. But even on those figures, Edinburgh is still well within level two thresholds. And if you look at the five indicators uh, that were published on Tuesday, the point at which the Cabinet made its decision, uh, one stayed at moderate, three remained at low, and one was moving from low to very low. So why was Edinburgh treated in this way? And here are some views from the real world. Louise McLean from Signature Pubs told us yesterday, we were totally expecting Edinburgh to go down to tier two but we then had to tell just shy of 100 people that we couldn't bring them out of furlough. Innis Bolt from the Montpellier Group also told us, we fully appreciate how contagious the virus is, but hospitality in the city centre of Edinburgh is suffocating. It's survival mode now. Edinburgh hasn't just become an economic hub and our second biggest city in the past couple of days. It was an economic hub and our second biggest city when the Deputy First Minister was indicating to the City Council and so to the local business community that it would be moving down to level two. So businesses, workers, communities in Edinburgh feel badly let down. What is the evidence, the rationale or insight that justifies that decision based on that judgment? And will the First Minister publish the advice because the people of Edinburgh deserve more than the three bullet points that were published on Tuesday. First Minister. The people of Edinburgh deserve a government that will take decisions to try to keep them as safe as possible from an infectious virus. I, I understand the impact on businesses and I deeply regret the impact of all of this on businesses. Uh, a global pandemic is not fair for anyone, but it's not the restrictions that are harming the economy, it is the virus that is harming the economy. And if we allow the virus to get out of control, the harm to the economy and to businesses is deeper and longer lasting. The fact of the matter is, and I've just shared with Richard Leonard in the Chamber, uh, the, the latest data on Edinburgh. Case numbers are rising. Again, test positivity is rising. And the fact of the matter is, when you're dealing with an infectious virus, if you ease restrictions against a rising trend of infections, you take a real risk that the situation very rapidly and very seriously runs out of control and it is not it would not be responsible for me as first minister or the government to take uh, that kind of decision uh, because of the impact on business that we know these restrictions have that's why the uh, finance secretary announced additional support for businesses yesterday but our key
priority, our overriding priority right now for the sake of people, for the sake of saving lives, the NHS and for the sake of businesses and the economy must be to keep this virus suppressed. Right now we've got uh, prevalence of the virus that nationally across the country is falling and our number that is falling. But we know that as we ease restrictions, all of that will be under pressure. As I said a moment ago, we can see that in every other part of the UK to varying degrees right now. So we must continue to take these decisions with the utmost care. And that is what this government and I as First Minister will continue to do. Richard Leonard. Presiding officer, this is about more than just the city of Edinburgh. It is about transparency and it is about public trust and confidence. Because the point is this, by overriding recommendations based on the data available and the advice of her own public health experts, the First Minister risks losing the trust and confidence of the public. The government too often appears to assume that people will act in an irresponsible way and that assumption is bringing businesses in Edinburgh and across the country to breaking point. The five-tier system was supposed to give people and businesses certainty and clarity, but we are seeing a return to arbitrary and ad hoc decision-making. Decisions like the one this week appear to be a political decision rather than a scientific decision. Will the First Minister accept that this not only undermines her stated commitment to limiting economic harms, it erodes public confidence in the government's message and so, in the end, it will deter compliance with it. First Minister. There's only one person in this exchange being irresponsible, and frankly, presiding officer, that is not me. I mean, let's just take a step back and reflect on how utterly ridiculous the content of Richard Leonard's questions to me there just was. I'm taking political decisions against the City of Edinburgh Council. The City of Edinburgh Council that is led by an SNP politician. <laughs> Why on earth would I be doing that? I'm taking decisions apparently politically that he himself has said are unpopular. Why would I want to take decisions that are unpopular when there is no, if there was no need to do that. I've set out very clearly the situation in Edinburgh and why it is really important that we don't ease restrictions when we have a rising trend of infections and test positivity in the city of Edinburgh. Because if we did that, in a couple of weeks' time, I would be standing here talking about a situation in Edinburgh that had run out of control and us perhaps having to put Edinburgh into level four. And do you know who would be first in the queue to attack me for it then? Yeah. One Richard Leonard, I suspect. So I will continue to take these decisions as the whole government will as safely and as responsibly as we possibly can. And I don't assume that people act irresponsibly. Uh, I am full of gratitude and appreciation uh, for the responsible way the public of Scotland have acted throughout this pandemic. Uh, but I do assume that an infectious virus takes every opportunity we give it to spread. And that's why we have got to limit interactions to keep that virus under control. And keeping that virus under control is about protecting health, is about protecting the NHS, it's about saving lives, but it is also uh, fundamentally about protecting businesses and the economy as well. And I will continue to take these decisions in the responsible way that I think the people of this country have a right to expect. Question number three, Patrick Harvey. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Most of us wish that we'd never heard of COVID or Brexit, but it's clear that facing them both at the same time will make each crisis even worse. Whether without a trade deal, we know that Brexit will be harmful, and by this weekend we may find out exactly how bad it will be. But Scotland's health boards have warned that Brexit could disrupt their services just at the time when we need them most. NHS Tayside has said that a no-deal Brexit could lead to an inability to deliver safe and effective care. And other boards are warning of disruption to medicine supply, workforce shortages, and of vulnerable patients abroad being forced to travel home. There have already been shortages of key medicines in the last couple of years, including morphine, benzodiazepines, HRT, and epilepsy drugs. And it's expected that these drugs and others will become increasingly hard to deliver in the months after we're dragged out of Europe. So can the First Minister assure us that Brexit will not result in a shortage of drugs or PPE in our NHS? 
and that working hours regulations and the longer term loss of medical staff from the EU countries is being taken into account in NHS workforce planning? First Minister. Well, firstly, can I say I am deeply and increasingly concerned at the lack of clarity uh, about the arrangements that will apply at the end of the Brexit transition period in just uh, a matter of weeks' time. Uh, we are uh, almost exactly, in fact, I think exactly a year on since the general election when the Prime Minister said his deal was oven ready. Uh, and here we are, we don't even know if there's going to be a deal. Um, and if there is a deal, it will be bare bones and minimalist and will do real damage uh, to the Scottish economy and to our society. So I am deeply, deeply concerned about that. Um, in terms of the specifics of Patrick Harvey's questions, I, I can't stand here and give an absolute assurance that there will be no impact on our economy on society and even on the health service if there is a no-deal Brexit at the end of this year. What I can give an assurance of is that the Scottish Government is doing everything within our powers to try to minimise and mitigate, mitigate against that impact. Uh, for example, in relation to medical contingency planning, we have been putting in place contingency plans uh, that involve a national stockpile of intensive care and end-of-life medicines. We're continuing to build that stockpile. Uh, we're working uh, across the four nations to ask pharmaceutical companies to increase stock of medicines to a six-week uh, supply uh, for medical devices and clinical consumables. We're working through NHS National Services Scotland to ensure adequate supplies of stocks are held in the National Distribution Centre. So we will continue to put uh, that planning into place. The UK uh, Vaccines Task Force is also planning to ensure the continued supply of vaccines uh, from the 1st of January. So we are doing everything we can, but nobody, nobody should be under any illusions as to how deeply damaging uh, the end of the transition is going to be, uh, whatever the circumstances, but how particularly damaging it's going to be if there is no deal agreed between the UK and the European Union. Patrick Harvey. Well, all of this uh, is coming at a time of year when our NHS would normally be under the biggest anyway, but with added COVID pressures this January, uh, this could be a perfect storm. Experts are consistently warning that we might face a third wave of COVID in the new year. The BMA and the Scottish Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, for example, have said that a rise in cases resulting from the lifting of restrictions over Christmas could overwhelm parts of the NHS whose services are already stretched to their limits. All this at a time when we're going to be asking the NHS to deliver the COVID vaccination programme, whose rapid progress is essential to defeating this virus. Can the First Minister advise what additional resource will be provided to the NHS to deal with this unprecedented crisis? Can she confirm by what date all NHS Scotland frontline staff will be vaccinated? I can't give the date for that right now for the simple reason that we don't yet have uh, clarity of exactly what supplies of the vaccine that we uh, will have, but we will uh, vaccinate in the order of priority that the JCVI ha has recommended as quickly as those supplies become available. We have uh, supplies this week. I've given the initial report of that. We expect to get further supplies before the end of this calendar year. The Health Secretary and I had direct conversations with Pfizer earlier this week to get a deeper understanding of that, uh, but we will vaccinate as quickly as those supplies come through. We are hopeful, although this is not yet certain, that we will see other vaccines get uh, authorisation in the weeks to come as well, so that will further accelerate the supplies that we have available. In terms of resources to the NHS, we have already uh, increased the resources available to the NHS to help deal with uh, the, the consequences and implications of the pandemic, and we discuss that on an ongoing basis uh, with the National Health Service. Uh, but the most important thing we can do for the National Health Service right now, as well as well as uh, hope, of course, that we don't get the disruption of a no-deal Brexit, is ensure that we are suppressing the virus. And that is why this government continues to take really tough decisions about the level of restrictions that have to apply in different areas. I've just had what I think is a really irresponsible line of questioning from the, the leader of the Labour Party, urging me to lift restrictions against a rising trend of infections. Uh, the reason we will not do that is exactly because we need to suppress the virus to protect our NHS and to save lives. Question number four, Willie Rennie. I do think it's important to ask questions about Edinburgh. Uh, the public health experts have seen the same numbers that the First Minister just read out earlier on, 
and they still think that it's safe, safe to ease the restrictions in the city. And the problem is this, the WHO say lockdowns should only be used to ease the pressure on health services because the damage caused by restrictions is high. The First Minister knows about the other harms. I've heard her talking about them. Mental health, jobs, poverty. And I question whether it is right that people have to pay the price with their mental health, with their job and with poverty when the advisers, the local leadership and our own framework say it's clear that it doesn't have to be this way. So can I ask the First Minister, is there any chance that Edinburgh will move to level two before Christmas? Uh, we'll assess that next week in the way that we uh, carry out this review on a weekly basis. Can I just be very clear that the Chief Medical Officer takes part in the Cabinet discussions uh, that come to these conclusions. Uh, they take account of uh, the views of the National Incident Management Team, they take account of an assessment of the four harms, and we come to very difficult decisions, but decisions that we think on balance are the right ones. Edinburgh is not in what the WHO would describe right now as a lockdown. Um, that's a, a, I appreciate for many people in Edinburgh it will feel as if they are, but the, uh, the description of lockdown in that sense is akin to what the country was in uh, earlier in the year. Uh, we've not had to, uh, and I hope this continues to be the case, unlike other parts of the UK, we've not had to apply another national lockdown um, and you know, we continue to take the action, uh, hopefully to avoid that. Uh, but let me just repeat again some of the statistics that I gave and again preface this by saying if I believed uh, that it was safe and wasn't taking uh, disproportionate risks to put Edinburgh or any other part of the country into a lower level of protection, why on earth would I not want to do that? I have no interest in keeping any part of the country in a higher level of protection than is necessary. But in test positivity uh, in Edinburgh, that has increased over five of the last seven days. Um, and in terms of case levels, four of the last seven days have seen an increase in the city of Edinburgh. So again, just let me make the obvious point. Taking any area down a level is not a neutral act. What it means is that we ease up restrictions that gives the virus more opportunities to spread. And inevitably, the virus will take those opportunities to spread. And if we do that uh, on a position, uh, a foundation that we don't consider is stable and sustainable, then the, the danger is that it rapidly runs out of control. This virus spreads and deteriorates very, very quickly. That's why we have to apply the greatest possible caution to these decisions. And that's why we will continue to do exactly that. Willie Rennie. And the First Minister knows I've been cautious throughout and I'll continue to try to support her, but it is hard when she turns her back on the advice and on her own framework as well. Two, two ferries at Ferguson's, 100% over budget, at least four years late, with desperate island communities still missing out. Taxpayers losing over £100 million. Workers let down by catastrophic management failure in a company owned by this government. And by far, the First Minister boasted to the workers she's saved their jobs, but I suspect she won't be back to hand out their P45s. Now they will only be able to watch as the wind farm is built off the coast of Fife. The government's industrial strategy is failing just when workers need it most. So what is the new plan to revitalise our yards? And please do not tell me there's another working group. If the SNP's working groups created work, we'd have full employment by now. First Minister. Well, before we leave the issue of COVID, which I can't do as glibly as Willie Rennie uh, just did uh, there, we will continue to take careful and considered decisions in Edinburgh and in all parts of the country. But if we don't continue to apply real caution, then we may end up in a situation over the next few weeks and over the remainder of the winter where this situation runs out of control again. And rightly and properly, if that happens, uh, then I'm sure Willie Rennie, just like Richard Leonard, uh, will be the first to question um, why we took decisions that allowed that to happen. Um, on BIFAB, three years ago, I think three years ago, uh, right now, uh, it is because of the action this government took that BIFAB did not close and go into administration back then. We have worked hard, uh, invested heavily, become a minority uh, shareholder in BIFAB to try to secure a future 
for the yard. Uh, unfortunately, we reached the, the limit uh, of our uh, ability legally to provide support to the yard, uh, and it has uh, unfortunately gone into the company has gone into administration. But we will continue to work uh, to secure, if we possibly can, a future for that. And I'm sorry, Willie Rennie doesn't like the reality of how you have to work through things in government. But there are issues around uh, the renewable supply chain that I'm afraid does involve us getting round the table, not least with the UK government, who still hold so many of these powers, to try to get a sustainable position where our supply chain win uh, more of the benefits of the renewables potential we have and the government will continue to do the hard work uh, involved in that uh, and as far as Ferguson's is concerned in terms of management failures the the management failures uh, in my view were before the government took the yard uh, into public ownership in fact that's why we had to take the yard into public ownership uh, and if we hadn't again if we hadn't stepped in to do that all of the jobs at Ferguson's would have been lost since the government took Ferguson's into public ownership there have been 139 jobs actually created uh, there so there are more uh, workers uh, working at Ferguson's now uh, than when we took the yard into public ownership so none of these issues are easy uh, none of them uh, offer up uh, straightforward solutions but we're determined to work uh, as hard as we can to secure uh, places like Bifab and Ferguson's and make sure uh, that we do the hard work to secure supplies of work for these places that unfortunately do mean us getting other people around the tables. Thank you. Question number five, Emma Harper. To ask the First Minister what support is being offered to food and drink businesses in Scotland to prepare for Brexit. First Minister. Uh, well, we're working uh, with food and drink businesses and organisations to do everything we can to mitigate the worst impacts. Uh, this includes providing guidance and support through enterprise agencies via the Prepare for Brexit website, leading efforts to develop a simpler risk-based approach to providing export health certificates for seafood exporters, for example. But there is no doubt Brexit is going to hit food and drink businesses very hard, deal or no deal, uh, but particularly hard if there is no deal. The consequences of that for Scotland's businesses could be and will be devastating uh, with consumers also badly affected. Emma Harper. First Minister, last month Scotland's food and drink industry penned an open letter to Boris Johnson warning of a perilous situation facing the sector with less than, at that time, 60 days until the end of the Brexit transition period. We're now only 21 days away and instead of pausing Brexit and extending the transition period, the Conservative government has taken the UK headfirst towards a bad deal or even a no-deal outcome in the middle of a global pandemic and economic crisis. Given the Scottish jobs and livelihoods that are on the line, does the First Minister agree that Boris Johnson and his band of Brexiteers have demonstrated they cannot be trusted to stand up for Scotland's interests? First well, to be fair, I think we knew that before uh, Brexit uh, reared its head, but the uh, experience of uh, the last period, uh, and particularly the last few weeks, as the UK government just seems to have, have failed to make any progress in Brexit negotiations, certainly underlines that point. Um, you know, I could stand here and talk for a long, long time about the impact of Brexit on almost all sectors of our economy, but you know, perhaps it's better just to quote uh, the Director of Policy of the National Farmers Union of Scotland, uh, who says this, with no certainty in the future trading relationship, UK and Scottish agriculture finds itself on a cliff edge. Uh, that is the reality for uh, whole swathes of our economy right now, and it is absolutely shameful that after all of the commitments, all of the promises, all of the glib assurances that we've heard from Boris Johnson, uh, we do stand uh, so close to that cliff edge. Let's hope uh, the whole of the UK doesn't go over it in the next few weeks, but I don't think anybody uh, watching the events of the last few weeks and seeing some of the, uh, the images from last night could have any real confidence in the UK government at this time. Question number six, Jeremy Balfour. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister how many staff are employed to answer calls to be COVID-19 tests in Scotland. First Minister. Appointments for symptomatic members of the public who require a test are in almost all cases made through the online booking system uh, and the provision of that service uh, is uh, the responsibility of the UK government. Uh, separate arrangements are in place through NHS boards for testing of NHS staff and patients and increasingly care home staff uh, that are transferring to NHS testing as capacity increases. Jeremy Balfour. President officer, I've been contacted by constituents who have waited more than 90 minutes on the phone to book a test. 
This is really important because there's a significant minority of people who are unable to use the online service and may be waiting on a call. There should be no barriers. We need everyone who has symptoms to book a test and to self-isolate to help stop the spread. I understand that there are two numbers you can call, an 0300 number and an 0800 number, which um, are both helplines. Can the First Minister tell us whether these lines are staffed by the NHS in Scotland or through the UK Government, or is it a mix of both? And what thought has been given to increasing the number of NHS Scotland staff handing requests to book a test? First Minister. Uh, the two numbers, uh, the member is right, there's an 0300 number and an 0800 uh, number. The, uh, these are staffed, as I understand it, certainly the first one is, I think the second one is as well, but if I'm wrong on that, I will uh, clarify that uh, by the UK government. Um, they do not uh, allocate staffing to a particular nation, uh, but as I said in my original answer, although the phone lines are there for people who cannot uh, use the online booking service, the vast majority of tests are booked through uh, the online service. If there are particular uh, constituency issues that any member is having raised with them, if they pass them on uh, to us, to the Health Secretary, we will absolutely uh, take it upon ourselves to look into those. Thank you. Question 7, Jenny Mara. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's position is on whether puberty-blocking drugs should continue to be administered to children in Scotland. First Minister. Well, I think decisions on treatment pathways are uh, best made by clinicians in consultation with patients uh, following all of the appropriate guidelines. Uh, I don't think it is the role of the Scottish Government to intervene in such decisions. Uh, young people can only be considered for puberty blockers after thorough psychological and uh, endocrine uh, assessment as per the clinical guidelines. Um, and anyone who commences puberty blockers continues to receive regular psychological review and support appointments. It's interesting that the First Minister doesn't think that uh, the democratic process and the courts can overrule uh, medical opinion, because that's exactly what happened in the English High Court last week. Presiding officer, let me say that I support the right and medical support for every child to live their best lives. But the judgment in the English High Court last week was very specifically on children's capacity to consent. Law and society does not deem that children have capacity to consent to sex, to marriage, and the High Court said last week that neither do they have the capacity to consent to life-altering, fertility-changing drugs until they are 16. But we know that NHS Scotland continues to give these drugs in the Sandyford Clinic in Glasgow to children as young as 11. With her legal background, can the First Minister tell me if she agrees that children do lack the legal capacity to give informed consent to these drugs? And if she does agree with that, will she instruct with her power the Scottish NHS to stop giving these drugs to our children? First Minister. Um, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to comment on court action or court decisions uh, that occurred in England. The ruling last week from the High Court has, as a matter of fact, it's, this is not a matter of opinion, has no formal status in Scotland. In the case of children and adolescents in Scotland, the Young People's uh, Service at Sandiford works within the existing guidelines. Uh, there are guidelines on the treatment of uh, young people that I referred to in my initial uh, answer. Uh, I think decisions on the type of treatment are for clinicians to make. Uh, Jenny Mara refers to my legal background. Uh, I have no clinical or medical background and I think it's important uh, that these are uh, matters for clinicians um, and if this parliament wants to, to look at these issues in a policy sense, of course, it is always open to the Parliament to do so. Thank you. We'll turn to supplementary questions. David Torrance to be followed by Alexander Stewart. Thank you, President Officer. A number of staff from a large supermarket in Kirkcaldy have contacted me with concerns about the changes to customer limits. The Stone Question have previously limited customer numbers to 350, but on the 5th of December this was increased to 963. Can I ask the First Minister what discussions the Scottish Government have had with major supermarket chains regarding the procedures that will be introduced to help prevent the spread of COVID-19 and ensure that the public and staff safety is prioritised before profits in the run-up to Christmas? First Minister. Uh, can I thank David Torrance for uh, raising an important issue? There has been uh, 
constant and ongoing engagement with retailers since the start of the pandemic, including very recent contact with nine major supermarkets to ensure safe shopping environments for consumers uh, and to get an update on the measures they have in place. Uh, these measures include ensuring there is a two-metre distance between customers, limiting the number of customers in stores at any one time, managing customer movement uh, through one-way systems, for example, mandatory face coverings, uh, including for staff communal areas, barrier screens at checkouts and enhanced cleaning and hygiene measures. And it is really important that retailers follow uh, all of these uh, guidelines and take all appropriate mitigations. Um, as Christmas approaches, uh, I think uh, we all expect that stores will be busier at times and it is therefore all the more important over the next few weeks uh, that the safety of both staff and customers is prioritised. I would appeal to all retailers, particularly as uh, level four ends uh, across 11 local authorities for retailers at 6am tomorrow morning, uh, to be really responsible and to put the safety of customers and staff absolutely at the top of their agenda. I understand retailers uh, want uh, to make up for lost business, will want to uh, see customers uh, frequent their shops. But if we have situations uh, where the virus is able to spread in retail, we will end up putting retail and our progress against the virus generally backwards. So I make a, an open appeal to retailers to bear that in mind and make sure that they put, as I'm sure they will continue to do so, uh, safety not just of their staff and customers, but the country as a whole at the top of their agenda. Thank you. Alexander Stewart, to be followed by Daniel Johnson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, you indicated a few weeks ago that a fund was set up for £30 million to support businesses, which included taxi drivers who did not qualify for other grants. Yesterday, the Finance Secretary confirmed further support to the sectors. Following assurances on the initial fund, constituents in my area contacted local authorities to apply for these grants but were advised that the funds had not been received from the Scottish Government. Therefore, weeks down the line, not a penny has been paid out, despite assurances to members' questions in this chamber. Therefore, when will hard-pressed businesses get the financial support that they rightfully deserve, First Minister? First Minister. Well, I think the Finance Secretary addressed this in the Chamber yesterday when she announced £185 million of additional support for businesses. Uh, the £30 million discretionary fund, uh, the allocations of that have been agreed. There has been guidance now. Uh, issued to local authorities, which I understand was at the request of local authorities, and it is now for local authorities to decide how they allocate that money. Uh, it is a discretionary fund meant to be there uh, for the purposes that local authorities consider to be necessary. Of course, the Finance Secretary also announced yesterday additional support for a range of uh, sectors, including additional support for the taxi trade, um, and we will work with local authorities to get uh, that support to affected businesses as quickly as possible. Daniel Johnson to be followed by Bruce Crawford. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The issue with the decision to keep Edinburgh at level three is not just that it seems to be contrary to the stated advice of public health officials, it's that the process that preceded it, uh, that preceded that decision seems to be confusing to all those outside it. Because we had days of speculation, presumably fueled by briefing uh, that turned out to be wrong. City leaders received advice from public health officials that turned out to be beside the point. And those same city leaders uh, received phone calls from ministers giving reassurances that turned out to be misplaced. So will the First Minister review the process by which these level decisions are made so it is transparent and robust, so that those consulted have their views taken into consideration and so the public have clarity and trust in the decisions that are arrived at? First uh, we, we review all of these matters on an ongoing basis and we learn lessons as we go because you know, these things are, are, are not perfect and we need to improve as much as we can. But I have uh, been at pains to set out the process that we will follow. Uh, at no time uh, was Edinburgh uh, City Council told that they were going to level two this week. The Deputy First Minister uh, had engagement with uh, the, the City Council. Um, I, I do a daily briefing uh, most days when I'm not in Parliament. Uh, beyond that, we don't brief hints about what's happening. We stand up and we, we, we talk openly about the factors we are taking into account um, and I've made very clear all along the factors that are taken into account but I've also made clear all along every week in this chamber um, and uh, at opportunities in between that the final decision every week is taken at the weekly cabinet meeting 
on a Tuesday morning. So that process is never easy. That process will never be easy, but we have set it out clearly and will continue to take the decisions we think in all circumstances are the, the safest decisions to get the country and every part of the country through this second wave of the virus as safely as possible. Bruce Crawford, to be followed by Miles Briggs. Does the First Minister recall that last week I asked the Scottish Government when it would announce what financial support would be available for spectator sports to help them through the winter period? First Minister, given that yesterday significant use support was announced for the hospitality and others, which is good, I was surprised there was no similar announcement for spectator sports. First Minister, when will the Government announce such a package? Because many smaller SPFL football clubs, for instance, who are employers of many people, are close to crisis point. First Minister. Well, we know the devastating impact that the pandemic has had on spectator sports across the country, uh, particularly when so many of Scotland's sporting clubs receive a significant proportion of their income uh, through spectators attending events. So I'm able to confirm that later this afternoon we will set out a £55 million package of support for various spectator sports. This will comprise a combination of grants and loans. It will include £30 million for Scottish football with support for all levels of the game. It should be noted that top flight English men's football has not received financial support of this kind from the UK Government. I can confirm that Scottish rugby will benefit from £20 million uh, and it will also include funding for basketball, netball, motorsport, horse racing and ice hockey. Um, that support package taken in its entirety will be well in excess of the Barnett consequentials announced uh, as a result of the uh, investment announced last month by the UK Government. Miles Briggs to be followed by Neil Bibby. Miles Briggs. Heading officer, 12 leading charities have signed an open letter backing the call of palliative care patients and their families to be prioritised during the rollout of COVID-19, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. I'd like to pay tribute to Fred Banning from East Renfrewshire for spearheading this campaign. The First Minister may have read about him in the newspapers or seen his interviews. Will the First Minister agree to personally investigate this matter and develop new guidance for clinicians, for terminally ill patients and their families receiving the vaccine because now that we have this vaccine it's more important than ever ever that those who have limited time left are able to spend that with their loved ones first minister um, yes of course i will look into uh, the the letter referred to personally i'm sure if we have received that letter we will already uh, be preparing a response to that and i absolutely understand uh, the sentiments and uh, the reasons behind uh, the request that is being made. Uh, we, of course, uh, decide uh, the prioritisation of uh, vaccination based on the advice from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, as do all of the UK nations. But, of course, within that priority list are the clinically vulnerable, um, and therefore there will be priority, uh, I think, uh, in the course of that advice given to the groups that the member uh, raises today. But, of course, we will continue to do what we can to make sure people, at the end of their lives, uh, families... Uh, wanting uh, to uh, maximise the time they have with loved ones, uh, have the priority that uh, they, they merit, and we'll respond to the letter as soon as possible. Thank you. Neil Bibby, to be followed by Ruth McGuire. Thank you, President Officer. Last night, the GMB won a day off on Boxing Day for all ASDA workers. However, ASDA have said workers will lose a day of annual leave as a result. So short workers are campaigning for a proper extra day off on New Year's Day. In Scotland, we already have power to give all supermarket workers a day with their families by closing large shops using the Christmas and New Year Trading Act 2007, for which the First Minister supported. I'm sure the First Minister will agree that supermarket workers have been the heroes throughout the pandemic, and there's no doubt they deserve a day off with their families. If we don't use the power this year, I'm not sure we ever will. Time is short, but there is time to do it. So will the First Minister agree to meet me and consider using the Scottish Government's powers in that Act to give these workers a well-deserved day off on the 1st of January. First Minister. I will undertake uh, to look into that and uh, arrange, uh, if not me, for the relevant Minister to have discussions with uh, Neil Bibby. I'm, I'm 
having not had the opportunity to look at the specific request yet, I'm not going to give a, a guarantee or an assurance uh, other than that I will look at it. What I will say is that I very much agree uh, that supermarket workers uh, have been heroic in the course of this pandemic. It has not been easy for them and I think they deserve our thanks and our gratitude and appreciation uh, for that. I, I do believe that they, like everybody else who has worked hard throughout this pandemic, uh, deserve rest and recuperation and uh, they deserve uh, that their employers will treat them fairly and I will always uh, urge employers to do that. So that would be my comments in general, but I'm happy to give further consideration to the specific request. Thank you. Ruth McGuire to be followed by Edward Mountain. Presiding officer, today is International Human Rights Day and earlier this week the UK Tory government announced its intention to review the Human Rights Act. It's important that we're all alive to this Tory threat to human rights protections in Scotland and indeed weakening of citizens' rights across the UK post-Brexit. Amnesty were quick to warn that tearing up the Human Rights Act would be a giant leap backwards. So can I ask the First Minister what discussion has the UK government had with the Scottish government regarding this important matter? First um, I've got very little information beyond what the UK government announced on Monday. Uh, we were not consulted in advance, as far as I'm aware, uh, and we have had no role in developing the remit of the panel. Uh, the Human Rights Act, in my view, is one of the most important UK statutes ever to be enacted. It secures the rights and freedoms of uh, every member of society, and of course it has served uh, Scotland and the whole UK extremely well for more than two decades. Uh, critically, uh, it's also central to the devolution settlement and this review mustn't become yet another exercise that undermines devolved powers, which uh, seems to be the objective at every cut and turn of the current UK government. I, I don't believe this review uh, is necessary and I believe that the UK government uh, should focus on respecting and protecting human rights rather than seeking to undermine them. Edward Mountain to be followed by Elaine Smith. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I'm sure the First Minister will welcome, as I do, that compensation payments funded by the Scottish Government are being made to those who had suffered bullying within NHS Highland, a process I support. Unfortunately, these payments are being administered through payroll, meaning that many victims, current and past employees, are being put into higher tax brackets, and those who have actually lost their jobs and now losing their benefits. Now, the Scottish Government can make pay compensation payments without attracting income tax and national insurance. Does the First Minister agree with me that unnecessarily using the payroll system compounds the pain and suffering and shows no compassion to those who have been bullied and will she resolve the issue as a matter of urgency? First Minister. Well, I, I, I'm very happy to look in to see to, to, to whether there is uh, a way in which we could uh, make the payments differently that would avoid uh, tax implications. But, you know, there perhaps is an easier way uh, for this to be uh, dealt with. The, the UK government that's responsible for deciding what income is subject to tax and is in charge of the majority of our benefit system uh, decided to exempt payments like this from that. And while they're at it, they could exempt the £500 bonus for NHS and social care workers as well. Elaine Smith, to be followed by June McAlpine. Thank you, President Officer. As the First Minister mentioned earlier today, the vaccine rollout this week is great news. Um, and obviously, at the moment, there are limited doses of the Pfizer vaccine. But can the First Minister advise when a public information campaign is likely to start to ensure maximum vaccination take-up? And what advice and guidance will be given to people with autoimmune disorders and allergies with regard to being vaccinated? First Minister. Um, the public information campaign uh, will start towards the end of this month, if I'm uh, recalling that correctly. There will also be a door drop that will uh, start to be delivered to people at the, the very start of January. I believe informa an information pack was distributed to all MSPs yesterday with uh, more information about the vaccination programme and, and placed in SPICE, so hopefully that was helpful and we will continue uh, as we have greater certainty over the supplies to update Parliament on the progress of that. As I said earlier on, we will from next Wednesday publish a weekly report on the numbers of people vaccinated. Um, in terms of uh, advice to people with allergies, of course, uh, the MHRA uh, issued advice uh, yesterday in the wake of two, uh, as I understand it, isolated cases in uh, England where uh, individuals had a reaction uh, to the vaccine. Uh, but in both of those cases, they were people who had a history of allergic reactions. And that has led to precautionary advice from the MHRA that people uh, with uh, a significant history of allergic reactions to medicines 
Pfizer vaccination should not get uh, the Pfizer vaccine at this stage. But I know the Chief Medical Officers, um, the MHRA, and I'm sure uh, Pfizer continue to look at this carefully. And uh, I'm sure in due course that advice will be updated as well. June McAlpine, to be followed by Liam Kerr. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. The Westminster Government has said that special arrangements for Brexit provide Northern Ireland with, in the words of Michael Gove, the best of both worlds. I seem to recall that Ruth Davidson herself previously threatened to resign if Northern Ireland was given a special deal. Like Northern Ireland, Scotland also voted to stay in the European Union. But can the First Minister tell us what special Brexit arrangements the Westminster Government is providing for Scotland? First Minister. None is the answer to that last question. Uh, of course, uh, the member is right in relation to Ruth Davidson. I'll, I'll quote exactly what Ruth Davidson uh, said. She, she could not support any deal that leads to Northern Ireland having a different relationship with the EU than the rest of the UK beyond what currently exists. Apparently, it would undermine the integrity of the UK internal market and of the United Kingdom. I can only speculate, uh, presiding officer, that it's amazing what the offer of a seat in the House of Lords can do to change somebody's opinion. Ian Kerr. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Today, the Justice Committee released its report on the SNP's hate crime bill. It's highly critical and concludes that the bill, as drafted, is a threat to our fundamental right to freedom of speech. Does the First Minister now agree with that conclusion? First Minister. Uh, unfortunately for the member, I, think I actually read the conclusion of it this morning, which I think it said something along the lines of, uh, subject to certain the government agreeing certain further amendments, uh, the committee supported the general principles of yeah, the bill is exactly uh, what it said. And I think that was unanimous, which yeah. must mean the Conservatives must have signed up to that conclusion. Uh, the government has already agreed to amendments to the hate crime bill, and we will consider carefully uh, the report that was published today. And uh, if we consider it appropriate, we will make further amendments in the interests of building consensus across the chamber. Thank you very much. And on that note, we're going to end FM First Minister's questions. Uh, I suspend this meeting until 2.30.